51 and a half, where we talk about all things science fiction, horror, fantasy, and pop culture. I'm your host, John Allen. With me is my co-host, Snyderman501, Nick Snyder. Nick, how can fans interact with us? Fans can interact with us on Twitter, on Instagram, and on Twitch with the at the area 51H, if you want to look for us. Now, just so you just so everyone is aware, on November 9th, the new Jurassic World Evolution game will be releasing. Join me on our Twitch stream uh, for a play-along. You know, Nick, and that brings us into today's topic. There is so much new coming down the chute from Hollywood right now that we just got a lot to cover. There is. Yeah, absolutely. And the first thing that we're going to talk about is Dune. Dune. Dune just released. Absolutely beautiful movie. It is visually stunning. I have to give it that. Uh, So let's go back in time just a little bit here to the origins of Dune. Of course, it is a novel written by Frank Herbert way back in 1965. Yep. So it's really one of those uh, baby boomer generation things, which would explain why a lot of people maybe aren't as familiar with it as they have been. uh, Other uh, franchises and other, other science fiction, because... For the longest time, it was a novel, and I don't know that it would have actually had its first movie treatment without the popularity of Star Wars, which in itself was probably influenced by Dune. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you look at, like, Tatooine, for example, you see the influence of Dune right there. Yeah, and and again, you're going against an evil empire that's hell-bent on galactic domination. Yeah, absolutely. And then that's really what we're looking at when we're talking about Dune, is that we're talking about how um, Paul Atreides, uh, whose family has sort of accepted stewardship over the planet Arrakis, which, of course, you know, the the catchphrase from the 1984 movie is, he who controls the the spices controls the universe. So you've got this wonderful, uh, rich resource that Everybody wants because that is the key to controlling the galaxy or the universe in this case. Yeah, absolutely. Moving on a little bit further in, in the Dune history, we have the, what was it, 1984? Yeah, the ni- yeah 1984. 1984. David movie. Lynch directed it. Yeah. And I've watched that. Uh, did, you, did you watch it recently? Uh, not recently, but I mean, I remember when it came out because I'm that old. Yeah, I watched it uh, a few months back. I... It, it's a weird thing because it's it's definitely a product of its time, but there are some things in it that still hold up. Like at the start of the movie, when you see that the navigator, the puppet that they made for the navigator is absolutely wonderful, looks great. But the movie has it has its issues. Well, most of that is, of course, dating and yeah. how movies have progressed in special effects and how. Movie making has changed. In fact, I will say this about the two different Dunes, is that watching the new Dune felt like a cinematic art piece, whereas watching the 1984 Dune feels more like a movie, if you understand what I mean by that. I I get what you mean by that. The the 84 movie does seem more kind of blockbustery, more cinematic that way. But the newer one feels like, it, it does feel like an art piece. I mean, you know, it's Dennis Villeneuve, so that makes a certain level of sense as well. And you know, it's really funny too, when you look at the, the fact that the first adaptation of Dune, the first movie adaptation, starring Kyle MacLachlan, had Patrick Stewart in Patrick it. Patrick Stewart, yep. Um, uh, Jose Ferrer had, had just a huge cast at the time. Flopped. 
It did not do well. It lost money. But, you know, like, there's a whole conversation that we could have about all the sci-fi projects back in the 80s that flopped. Well, yeah, but, I mean, I'm just saying it's interesting that we have sort of a renewed interest now in the new Dune. It's almost like that has all been forgotten, and, like, this is almost like the first adaptation of the novel. I agree with you. I agree with you. And I think, really, what we're looking at is the 1980s Dune was a movie that was a little bit ahead of its time because it had such... It had loft, let's just say it had lofty goals. And the, the, the effects at the time just couldn't meet it. They did their absolute best. I will give them that. But some of the effects, as I said before, are wonderful. But it, it takes today's effects, the CGI, everything that we have at our disposal now to properly bring it to the big screen. Right. And, you know, they, they've tried to adapt Dune uh, numerous times, but it sort of becomes notoriously difficult for them to do that. I think because part of it is that in a novel, you can follow all of the different houses, you can follow all the exposition, you can follow all the narrative. Whereas in a movie, you're trying to condense a whole novel, or in this case, a series of novels, into a movie or a couple of movies. Yeah, and that's happened several times in the past. All you need to do is look at the Harry Potter series to to kind of see what plot threads get dropped in a movie because there's so many um some of them are good plot threads some of them aren't none of us liked spew thankfully they left out of the movie but that that's kind of a thing that happens some people actually did like spew i'm not one of them but (laughs) some people did like that i was kind of glad that that was not part of the movie because i think that the exposition of that was one of those threads that was decent in a book but it carried on through multiple books and i don't think it's really the story that we cared about i understand the underground narrative of that but we're off topic let's get back to doom so herbert actually wrote five sequels to dune there's dune messiah children of dune god emperor of dune heretics of dune and chapter house dune now i don't understand what it is about dune that seems to fall into that cult status that it's kind of in the underground of, of sci-fi. We've all heard of it. Mm-hmm. We're all aware of it. We can all say the catchphrase. We kind of know about the different houses and all that. But it doesn't seem to spark that same kind of popularity that, say, Star Trek or Star Wars or even Battlestar Galactica has. I think that comes down to, well, There's I'm sure there's several aspects about it, but Dune is a little more high concept as where Star Trek and Star Wars is, I would say, a little more accessible to the average audience. I'm not saying that they're bad or anything like that, obviously not because I love Star Trek and Star Wars, but there's something a little bit more out there with Dune, a little bit more... It's more cerebral. Yeah. Very much more cerebral. Um, And, you know, we can see the influence that it's had. Um, Like, the series has been used as a basis for several board games, for role-playing games, for video games. They're the names of the planets from Dune novels. They've been adopted for real-life uh, names of planes and other features on Saturn's moon Titan. Yeah, absolutely. That, that which is awesome. So, I mean, it's, it's not like there isn't an influence there, but I myself, I would not put myself in the category of being a Dune fan. 
because it's something that I knew existed, but I was not that interested in it. And when I watched the first movie, I wasn't that into it. It it felt confusing. It felt a little disjointed. Now, part of that, I think, is also David Lynch's style. I can understand that. Now, here's the thing with the first movie and me. Do you know why I even watched the first movie? I I couldn't tell you. Honestly, just because because it had Patrick Stewart in it. I love Patrick Stewart. Now... At the point I watched it, I was aware of the remake that was coming up. I just didn't have the interest. I just wanted to watch. Oh, and Kyle McLaughlin as well. I like Kyle McLaughlin. There was the interest there based on who was in it. And that honestly is kind of what propelled me to watch the remake as well. Because the remake also has a huge cast. Well, and thanks to the popularity of Star Wars, as a kid growing up in the 80s, and about the time the 80s rolled around, I was starting to become a young teenager and then eventually a full-grown teenager. Everything was science fiction and fantasy. Those were the big things coming out every summer, every year. Somebody wanted the new Star Wars. So they would they would market things, I guess, in the pitch meetings being things like, it's like Star Wars, but yeah. so that they could actually get all the uh, interesting, the interest generated in the property that they wanted to push forward. Yeah. And there was a lot of properties back then. Obviously, um, they're all escaping my head right now. I'll edit well, that you've got later. the Dark Crystal, you've got Labyrinth, you've got, the, well, even uh, things like the Karate Kid, Ghostbusters, you, you name it. I mean, there's all kinds of fantasy genres. Every, every studio wanted its tentpole. Every studio, it wasn't just a case of we want a big sci-fi tentpole like Star Wars. We They just wanted their tentpole. Well, and like I mentioned, too, they were looking at toys. They wanted toys in there when uh, you were surprised to find out in our first broadcast when I mentioned Clash of the Titans, that there were actually toys and tie-ins with that. I had no clue. And, you know, sometimes that didn't work out too well because because I think of the target audience. For instance, Don Bluth Studios put out The Secret of Nim. Now, a lot of people regard The Secret of Nim as a benchmark or a hallmark in animation. But in terms of marketing and toys and tie-ins, not so much. Same with Dark Crystal. Same with Labyrinth. They were there, Mm -hmm. but people really weren't as into that merchandising as we are now. Yeah, and it's it's really interesting how a lot of those properties that didn't have the merchandising tie-in now do. And I think back in 1984, that's probably one of the problems that Dune had, was the fact that Dune is meant for a far more mature audience than kids were, and... You know, it's really meant for the, the the baby boomers that read the novel when it first came out in 1965. So where in the 80s would you have had that marketable tie-in for toys? I honestly, I have no idea. I could only imagine them trying to market Dune toys to kids. Yeah. So let's move forward now. We've talked enough about the 1984 version. We've talked enough about uh, Herbert and the novelization. Let's get into the movie of 2021. Dune. Starring Timothy Chalamet, we've got Zendaya, we've got Jason Momoa. Like, what a cast. What yeah. an amazing cast. Yeah, and it's got Dave Bautista in it as well. Right. You right. know, it's just a stellar cast. And speaking of stellar, Stellan Skarsgård is mm, brilliant. Oh, the Baron, yeah. yeah. Oh. And, you know, I love the effects that they have in that because, you know, they they describe the, the Baron as, as definitely floating up because he's so heavy he cannot withstand his own weight. And just the effects that they had of the floating was, even that alone was amazing. And one of the things I found out about it, and we made the comments when we were watching the movie, but one of the things I found out that I loved about it is they actually based the look off of Marlon Brando in Apocalypse Now. 
you had noticed that in the in the movie that yeah. you kind of felt it had a brand it, really, it really felt like that yeah. and there were things that he did in the movie that that mirrored what brando was doing in apocalypse now i'm just like this is amazing i love it well that might be but i think in apocalypse now they were just filming brando going okay i don't know what he's doing but you know we'll just we'll just film it he, he's gonna act like a nut job so let's just film it and see what we got you're 100 percent right but that is another podcast <laughs> so Let's move on. Um, Your thoughts going forward with this new Dune. Do you recommend people see it? Okay. Here's the thing. It was beautiful. It was cast well. The performances, for the most part, are decent. But there's so much exposition and so much talking that it, it it's the pacing just is a little bit off for me. If you're going to see it, see it in theater. Because the visual, the, the visuals are going to blow you away. But if you're going to sit at home and watch it, it's, I don't think it's going to be the, the best experience for it. And I think it's one of those problems that Hollywood is having where they are relying so much on visual and not so much on actual dialogue and script and, and, and narrative. And that's the other thing. Let's talk about the, the dialogue for just a moment. One of the problems I had with the dialogue is that everyone was talking under their breath. Which made it difficult to understand all of the dialogue. Like, I had to really concentrate and Even some with stuff. the sound system. And this is one of the things that Hollywood does over and over and over again. Is that they make the action sequences so loud. And then everyone talks like this. And the dialogue is so soft that you think you're going deaf. Yeah, exactly. And that's kind of how I felt at times. Yeah, and, and that's just that's a whole other issue that um, we won't even talk about because... It really has nothing to do with the podcast. That's just a technical thing that Hollywood does or does not do. And hey, I'm curious. Anybody that watched at home on HBO Max, tweet us. Let you let me know if we're off base. I want to know how it sounded at home. Yeah, and I just think that this film overall is gorgeous to look at. And speaking of gorgeous to look at, my biggest disappointment was that Zendaya was not in it very much because she's going to feature a lot more in part two. Yeah, exactly. And exactly. I, I have to say, she is just a beautiful, beautiful young woman. And I have grown to be a fan of hers, not because she is so beautiful, but because she is enormously talented. Oh, amazingly so. Amazingly so. Um, and another thing is, I like Jason Momoa, he eats up the screen. I love the man. He's brilliant. If you're a Jason Momoa fan, just just go see it because of him. <laughs> uh, yeah, so my final thoughts on that is I really liked what they did with the Baron. I like what they did with the visuals. I thought the cast was was fantastic. And, and just the, the overall experience of it is a visual treat. Yeah, I agree with you. So I do recommend the movie, but you do have to know that it's going to be a bit of a slow burn to get to those action sequences. It is. It is. But hey, when the action sequences hit, beautiful. And speaking of slow burns, Nick, I want to talk about something that is airing on Netflix right now, and that is Midnight Mass. Yeah, you were talking to me about a little bit about this before Halloween. Sounds interesting. I haven't had the chance to sit down and watch it yet, although I have looked up a little bit of trivia about it. Well, let me give you a little bit of background. It's from Mike Flanagan, who did uh, The Haunting of Hill House, Doctor Sleep, Gerald's Game, The Haunting of Blythe Manor, and a few other properties. So when you read the quote, it feels like the best Stephen King story that Stephen King didn't write. 
you kind of understand why. Yeah, there's a little bit of pedigree behind that one. Yeah, so he, he's got this influence and he's been successful at uh, some adaptations of Stephen King. But I, I don't want to get into it too much because of the spoilers. So let me just give you the basic plot of it. Please do. All right, so there's a group of people who are living in an island off the coast of Maine, right. basically, or New England somewhere. Doesn't necessarily mean Maine, but... And they are always, of course, referred to as islanders. They're a very tight-knit community. You have your uh, people that have their their issues, if they will. There's a doctor. There's um, uh, a magnificently played church lady. I'm sorry, I don't know the actress's name, but she was a standout performance in it. Um, there's parents, um, and our main, our lead actor, if you will, is the priest, and the secondary lead is a character that he caused the death of a young woman in a car accident. He's been in jail because of it, because he was a, uh, it was a DUI. Mm-hmm. And so he's now returning to the island and trying to make peace with himself and the men. So the visuals in Midnight Mass, to begin with, are stunning. Mm-hmm. The story is a slow burn, but it's a slow burn that you're on the edge of your seat, kind of wondering what's going to happen next. Starts off just like any other kind of day. Our character comes home. Our main character comes home. Uh, he's there with his brother. His brother's off to uh, took the, a boat to another little island to hang out with his friends. They see something kind of creepy going on because there's a bunch of cats that live on this island. And and just the visual stunning of seeing the cat's eyes in the dark is, is kind of amazing in and of itself. And he catches a glimpse of something that startles him, but he doesn't know what it is. And we don't know what it is. So obviously, as happens in New England, a hurricane is coming. And during this storm, he notices the old priest that they talk about, that the new young priest has come to replace. Right. And he's just there on the beach. And so he goes out to chase after him, and he swears that he saw him. And of course, that's not possible. So I can't actually talk any more about it without giving away spoilers. I appreciate that. I'm sure our listeners do as well. But I do recommend that if you like a good, scary story, that you watch Midnight Mass. I think it's uh, it's about seven episodes, limited series, seven episodes. And, you know, I tell you, it is a good bang for your buck. Awesome. I'll check it out, probably this weekend. Now, Nick, <laughs> this one's going to be funny. I'm going to let you take this one away. Brian Cox's book. Brian Cox's book. Oh, jeez. Okay, so... Last week, um, and it, it, it's been a bit of a, uh, a ride for pop culture the past couple of weeks since our last show, Brian Cox, the legendary British actor that he is, wrote a book. Do you have the name of the book? I, I don't have the name of the book. Okay. But I'll have to look it up. Okay. Uh, but, you know, let, let's first of all talk about some of the things that Brian Cox has been in, in case people don't necessarily recognize his name right away. So in Manhunter, he played Hannibal before Anthony Hopkins yeah, did. Yeah. Now, it was a very small role in that adaptation. Of course, that's the adaptation of, um, oh, gosh, that's escaping me now, um, in the Hannibal trilogy, Science of the Land, oh, Red Dragon, pardon me, sorry for that, once in a while we're going to have those brain farts, um, so Red Dragon, uh, Manhunter is an adaptation of Red Dragon, and he played Hannibal in that, he was Striker in the X-Men series, yes, he was, uh, he was in Reds, yep. um, <laughs> fantastic, uh, as the Russian spy who was in love with the Helen Mirren character. And he was in 
one of our favorite movies. Trick or Treat. Trick or Treat. Playing Mr. Creek. What a great performance that was. Yep. So we first of all, we love Brian Cox, let me tell you that. I can't mention his body of work without mentioning Autopsy of Jane Doe. Oh, fabulous film. Absolutely brilliant. Fabulous film. Okay, so the name of the book is Putting the Rabbit in the Hat. And that will be available on January 18th. In this book, Brian Cox just straight up decided to spill the tea. Now, before we get into that, though, let's talk about that title. Putting the Rabbit in the Hat. That is a reverse magic trick. It's almost it like he's exposing the magic of Hollywood. Is is this what I, we're getting at? I, well, with some of the comments that he's made, I would say that is exactly it. <laughs> like... He, 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 he made comments about Tarantino basically saying he doesn't like his movies, but if he called them, he'd do it. Uh, made comments about Johnny Depp, made comments about David Bowie, but one of my favorite comments is about one of my favorite actors, which is Michael Caine. Now, what he says about Michael Caine is, well, essentially, what can I say about Michael Caine except that he's an institution? And when you're an institution, you don't have to have range. Now, if I'm going to be objective, Again, Michael Caine is one of my favorite actors, but if I'm going to be objective, is Brian Cox wrong? Is Michael Caine an actor with a lot of range? Well, I'm not going to pass judgment on that. I'll leave that to Brian Cox. <laughs> well, there again, Hollywood acting is a lot different than, I think, stage acting in the fact that we see, since he mentioned Johnny Depp, I'm going to go with him. We see little mannerisms. We see Deppisms. We see all these this way that, professional actors have of acting that they bring from character to character to character. So one of the things that I do like about Johnny Depp is that he does create characters, win or lose, whether they're good or bad, he goes and tries to create an interesting character in all of the films that he does. Yeah, and that's that's a thing. Like, I I love Johnny Depp. I can't say too much bad about him from his his more serious fare, like What's Eating Gilbert Grape to some of his more comedic stuff like Jack Sparrow and the Pirates movies, there's not a whole lot bad I can say about him. Yeah, and you know, so speaking of books, so, I mean, if you want to check out uh, Putting the Rabbit in the Hat, by all means, we haven't read it, so we can't uh, speak too much on that. A book that I am currently reading, though, is Elvira Cruelly Yours by Cassandra Peterson, who is behind Elvira. I know this is a little bit of old news now, but it's an interesting read. I love how she spills the tea and spills her truth. You know, and that's the, I didn't actually realize that you had the book. I wasn't. I didn't realize that you were reading it. That's great to hear. I'd love to read it myself. Um, John and I both love Elvira. She is one of the big pop culture icons in horror that we've that we're kind of attached to. We love her. We'll watch her. Honestly, we'd watch her read the phone book, uh, and she'd still make it spooky. And but, funny. And funny. But, yeah, we watched her uh, her, four, her 40th anniversary uh, gig, which was a lot of fun on Shudder. And it was kind of fun just to hear her comments on her own movie. And, yeah, I, I Yeah, for it. me, it was very nostalgic, too, because I I was around when Elvira first hit the scene. So I, I it was a bit nostalgic watching Elvira doing a movie macabre, and she did four movies. Uh, the first one, of course, was her movie Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, which is the campiest, cheesiest, <laughs> best, glorious little trick-or-treat oh. you could ever get. It is funny. It is um, relevant. I love the fish-out-of-water kind of tale yeah. where she is, of course, Elvira, and she winds up 
going head to head with the the played by Edie McClure, the head of the the decency committee, if you will, and the name of the, the character by Edie McClure plays Chastity Pariah. I mean, my God, it is just a beautiful little movie that if you haven't seen it, watch it. You don't have to watch it on on Halloween, but it is a great Halloween movie to watch. That isn't. Uh, it, it's got some adult humor in it, so maybe not with the little ones. <laughs> yeah, but no. I, I really sort of recommend everybody checking out uh, Cruelly Yours because, uh, and again, I, I'm not all the way through it, but I've learned so much about the background of Cassandra Peterson, and I was surprised at how much I have in common with her. She loves Superman, Vincent Price, you know, all, all these different things that I love too. And mm-hmm. I was just, just listening to an interview, and I'm like, oh my God, this woman could we could really be friends. And you actually at one point had the pleasure of meeting Cassandra. I did. I met her at the Niagara Falls Comic Con. She is a lovely, lovely lady. And uh, she she sort of misunderstood what I meant because so many men have, you know, had fantasies about her, shall we say. Yeah. And uh, so she, she thought that I had uh, fantasized about her when I said that she meant a lot to me growing up. And really what I meant was that she made it so that anybody that is a bit of an outsider that likes horror that likes nerdy things that likes um can can have a place in society too and be funny and be accepted and be welcomed and that's kind of the fun thing about horror hosts like that is that they they kind of have that feeling that welcoming feeling whether it be elvira whether it be joe bob whether it be if you're a little more old school it'd be zachary you kind of have that that feeling that these people are taking and you by the hand. Yeah. yeah. They, you kind of have that feeling that they're taking you by the hand. They're instilling this knowledge about horror to you and they're they're making you laugh. And it just it makes it makes horror kind of feel like a family. Yeah, because when we go back to way back to Vampira, she was really more serious. It was like very spooky, very uh, creepy. Whereas Elvira was more like vamp pyra with a mix of ginger from gilligan's island with a mix of uh well i don't know let's say lucille ball yeah just as a as a, a, a comedic take on that as an aside there's a sitcom i would have watched lucille ball and elvira <laughs> <laughs> yeah anyway uh moving on from that oh I, I do want to mention though that before we do move on from that she's got a lot of 40th anniversary uh figures coming up from NECA oh, and man. uh a few other sources and they look beautiful the NECA figure looks amazing Okay, Nick, tell us what is coming up, what has dropped in the DC fandom. All right, in DC. So, uh, the other week, we had DC Fandom. DC Fandom is kind of their big their big expo where DC and Warner Brothers kind of gets to show snippets and bits and pieces and everything of their upcoming DC movies. So, we got to see tidbits of Aquaman 2. We got to see tidbits of Shazam. Uh, we got to see a new trailer from the Batman, which, ooh, boy. And, of course, my favorite, we got to see a little bits and pieces of The Flash, starring Ezra Miller and Michael Keaton is back as Batman. And we saw a little teaser, too, of the um, Shazam universe with Black Adam. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, seeing... Okay, so the cool thing... I don't know if it's a cool thing, but the thing about Black Adam is it has been in production purgatory for a long time, at least a decade, probably more, with The Rock attached to play it. So seeing Dwayne Johnson 
in costume as Black Adam finally after all these years was cool. And you know, I I'm kind of excited by it because I know that Dwayne Johnson clearly is a fan. Yeah. So he's going to want to do it right, and I think he's going to make sure that it's done right. Um, and I think it's since the Scorpion King, and maybe uh, that's a spoiler, so I'm not going to say it. But it's kind of the first time he's played a villainous character, isn't it? Essentially. I mean, outside of being, you know, a heel during some of his wrestling days. Oh, he was such a good heel. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, yeah. For the, I think this is the first time that he's playing a really like the main villain of a story. Yeah. Now, obviously, in the Black Adam movie, he will be the protagonist. But sometimes, sometimes in a movie, the antagonist is also the protagonist. Yeah. Like when you look at um, the Devil's Rejects as an example, these are despicable people. The Firefly family has done despicable things from House of a Thousand Corpses. Yeah. And the sheriff is well within his rights to try and vindicate his, his brother's death and all the other deaths that these people have caused. But then he captures them and he becomes just as crazy as the Firefly family. Yeah, yeah. And so we start kind of rooting for them to get away from him. And that, that's kind of the neat thing about Devil's Rejects is, yeah, you have these absolutely despicable people, but Rob Zombie's a good enough director that he can make you root for them. So which of the things that were dropped at DC Phantom are you most excited about? The Flash. I mean, I am so excited for that. I, first and foremost, let's get this, this out of the way. I like Ezra Miller. I think he's, I think he's good. I really liked him in in Justice League and in the Snyder Cut. And I'm looking forward to him having his own movie. The other thing, as I mentioned before, Michael Keaton's back as Batman. And I am I am here for it. I cannot wait. I am seriously just jacked for that. Yeah, and you know, Michael Keaton did such a good job in the Tim Burton Batman playing both Bruce Wayne and Batman. Yeah, I agree. Um, I would say he was at, he's actually my favorite Batman. And it's interesting, too, because all the flack that we go, that was given over the casting of Michael Keaton in that role I know, back in 1989. Back in 1989, there were huge letter-writing campaigns because people were angry. They had cast a comedian. They cast Beetlejuice. Yeah, and he just proved them wrong and owned it. Yes, he did. So for me, I'm most excited about Shazam 2. Uh, Helen Mirren joins the cast. So that is going to be fun to watch her in a superhero movie. That will be. I really liked what they did with Shazam. It wasn't um, it wasn't hard to watch. It was, I think all the notes were there where you have Billy Batson and suddenly he's an adult and he can do all these things. And he's trying to figure out all of his superpowers. And I like the fact that, you know, family doesn't always come from the people that you're born to or mm-hmm. born with, your siblings. It can be this wonderful foster family. It can be a family of friends. It can be anything it wants. I thought that it was played well. I thought that there was a lot of good comedic tones to it. And I think that in Shazam 2, we're going to see it grow up a little bit. Yeah, and I and once we start tying in Black Adam with that, because that very small teaser was fantastic. Yeah, so it I'm was. really excited to see that because prior to this, the only Shazam that I was ever 
that I had ever seen was this really cheesy 70s, 80s Saturday afternoon show, the Shazam Isis Hour, yeah. which was kind of funny. Yeah. Like, when you look back, I don't think it was it was great fare. No, no. I, I've seen bits and pieces, snippets of it on different podcast on different uh, YouTube shows. But I've never actually sat down and watched an entire episode because, frankly, I don't want to. Now, when I was a kid uh, in Scotland, my grandmother, for some reason, had v- VHS tapes of Shazam. So I watched that cartoon from, I don't think, the 50s. <laughs> now, you know, I didn't really have a lot of exposure to Shazam yeah. prior to. Uh, so let's flip it over here. Let's flip to the other big house of comics and the MCU. What's coming up there? Oh, boy. Well, let's talk about Marvel for a minute, shall we? Let's do. (laughs) So we got Eternals coming up. John, what do you know about Eternals? I know absolutely nothing about the Eternals. Well, kind of (laughs) same. I know about as much of the Eternals as I did about Guardians of the Galaxy. I knew more about Guardians of the Galaxy than I actually knew about the Eternals. Yeah, see, I didn't... I I didn't know much about Guardians when they first came out. And I think it's going to be kind of the same thing where... The Eternals are going to come out, nobody really knows a thing about them, and it's going to hit the audience hard, just like Guardians of the Galaxy did, and they're going to fall in love with it. Well, look at the cast. There's Selma Hayek, there's Angelina Jolie, there's... Uh, I'm just trying to think off the top of my head. Yeah, I mean, they, again, they've got some really good actors in this, so... And and the trailer does look interesting. It does. Actually, the thing I love about the trailer is that it looks like the most jack kirby thing they've done yet and that's saying a lot because thor ragnarok was really jack kirby but um it just the 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 style of it the look of it it just looks so reminiscent of 1960s marvel yeah and i'm kind of interested to see where they're going because this is the girl that you and i would fight over florence Pugh is taking over as the as the black widow or a Black Widow-like character, I believe. Yeah, Florence Pugh is Yelena Belova from Black Widow. And in the comic book, she does become the Black Widow. So, yeah, absolutely. I think that's what they're setting up is basically the new Avengers with a new version of Black Widow. Um, you've got the upcoming Hawkeye TV show coming up with Kate Bishop, who also is another version of Hawkeye in the comics. So I think they're setting up that that kind of new, younger team, the new, younger version of the Avengers going forward. And I'm really excited to see Doctor Strange 2. Oh, man. Okay, hang on. We're getting ahead of ourselves, though. We're getting ahead of ourselves. Spider-Man. Oh, yes. Spider-Man No Way Home. So, Spider-Man No Way Home. Let me interrupt you for just a moment. Can we just be excited that Alfred Molina is back as Doc Ock? Of course we can. Alfred Molina is brilliant. He was... Okay. To this day, I still think that Alfred Molina is one of the best villain portrayals in a superhero movie as Doc Ock in Spider-Man 2. And does that include the actor that we say in hushed tones of awe, a whisper, his name? Dafoe. Yeah, honestly, Willem Dafoe can do do no wrong. I love, I love the film. Um, the, the the belief, because we've seen the trailer, we've heard the laugh, is that Willem Dafoe is back as the Green Goblin, which I'm excited for. It'll be interesting because what universe is this coming from? Because the last time we saw the Green Goblin, he was 
run through by his own goblin glider. Spoiler alert for a movie that's nearly 20 years old. But again, you know, we've got uh, Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. Yeah. So that title is very telling. It is. I, it starts, obviously, it gets set up in Spider-Man No Way Home. Well, and that's, a, that's the other thing. Um, I think a lot of this is going to tie into what we saw in WandaVision and what we saw in Loki as well. I think this is all going to spiral into each other. For example, like we know Elizabeth Olsen is in Multiverse of Madness as Wanda. I am still not over Alligator Loki. <laughs> oh, um, somebody dressed up as uh, Loki for Halloween, and it was a, he, he was a, a gator rancher or something, and he had a little baby gator dressed up as Loki. Oh yeah, my yeah. god, how perfect is that? Yeah, I saw that. And I when I say I'm that. not over it, I am living for Alligator Loki. It just crack me up. It was that little bit of weirdness that you just go, is that a freaking alligator I see? Is there, like, an alligator Loki? Yeah. Yeah. I, I love it. I There there were so many nods to the different universes that we've seen in the comic books in the Loki TV series. We even got to see Thorfrog for just a split second. <laughs> I thought that was great. And I, getting back to Thor Ragnarok, I mean, I loved that moment. Was it Thor Ragnarok or was it... I'm, uh, I'm getting a little confused as to the movies. There's just so many of them. Oh, I know. Um, but the, the line from the Thor movies where he said, remember the time I turned you into a frog? <laughs> yeah. I yeah. just was living for that little Easter egg. Let's flip back to DC for a minute because the Batman. The Batman. Okay, so... Starring sparkly vampire Robert hey, Patterson. Hey, 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 hey. Have a little bit more respect for the guy. Oh, I can't. And, I, and you know why. I know why. You know why. So let's, let's let the listeners know why. Who do I love? Who's the girl I can take home to mom? Who do I just have a big respect and fandom for and just a, a little crush on? Well, that would be Reese Witherspoon. That would be Reese Witherspoon. And Robert Patterson did a movie with Reese Reese Witherspoon called Water for Elephants, based on the novel, uh-huh. which Reese Witherspoon I think was behind. It's going back a few years uh, because she's an avid reader, and of course, if you get a, a novel that you really enjoy and that you have the opportunity to do it with your production company, you're gonna do it. Yeah. So Robert Pattinson had a runny nose. This is this is right out of Reese Witherspoon's mouth to God's ear. He had a runny nose. Does the man get a Kleenex? Of course not. Does the man stop the scene for a minute to blow his nose? No. No. What he does offends me to the very core. Oh, does it now? Yes, it does. He grabs her wig and blows his nose in it. I will never get over that. Now, mind you, I will still see a movie that has Robert Pattinson in it. No matter how weird it is. But... I can't get over that. I can't. I can't. Okay, so let's move on to the trailer for the Batman. Let's. So we got to see Paul Dano in costume. We didn't get to see him full on, but we got to see him in costume as the Riddler for the first time, which is kind of how I'm I'm digging it. I'm digging it. I kind of like the whole kind of Saw vibe to it. And I think Paul Dano will do a good job, too, because yeah. if you go back to uh, There Will Be Blood. He went toe-to-toe with Daniel Day-Lewis. And it's very hard to go toe-to-toe with Daniel Day-Lewis. It is. Now, another thing we got to see was Colin Farrell as the Penguin, which 
I'm shocked. It looks like he's going to kill this. Honestly, the entire movie looks fantastic. It looks like it's going to be... Every time they redo Batman, they have the bandwidth to do something a little bit different each time. And they tend to knock it out of the park. And you've got, like, if you look at the the Nolan movies versus the Tim Burton movies, those are very different films. And I think what we've got here is the Batman for the new generation. It's going to be very, it's going to be, I think it's going to be iconic. I think it's going to work. And I'm really excited for it. Yeah, and you know, I, I, I love the fact, and I've always said this, and uh, maybe I'm somebody heard me, or maybe the universe heard it and went there. I always thought that the Riddler would be great as a Saw-like character, and I agree. apparently they are doing that. Well, and that's that's kind of the thing, is that the, the Riddler has often been betrayed as a clone of the Joker. If you look at the Frank Gorshin Riddler or Jim Carrey's Riddler... He's just cracking jokes and, and laughing all the time. And it's not how the Riddler has been portrayed necessarily in the comics and even other media. Like if you look at the Riddler in the Batman the Animated Series or even the Riddler who was voiced by Robert Englund, by the way, in the Batman from, 2000, from the early 2000s, they are played very cold, very calculating, and they do utilize a lot of traps. Yeah. So it works. It makes sense. It does make it makes a ton of sense to me. And just before we move on to our next little snippet here, I, I do want to say I do absolutely respect uh, Robert Pattinson's t- uh, talent. Um, the lighthouse that he was in with um, Willem Dafoe is visually stunning, and his acting was spot on. Um, he went toe to toe with Dafoe. Yeah, he did. And I, if you've seen The Lighthouse, you're, it, you're, you've seen something weird. If you haven't seen it, you're in for a ride. It, it is, is an interesting horror movie that nobody knows what it's about. Yeah, basically. Is it a Lovecraftian horror? Is it the, 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 the effects of alcohol? Is it some dude going crazy? Who knows? Yeah. And, and you know what? It's all of those things. Whatever you get out of a movie like The Lighthouse, it is all of those things. Yeah. And that's kind of the thing is that's the thing is kind of neat about it is it is objective. Yeah. Even Eggers, I don't think he said he didn't really know what it was about. It just concept idea, loved it, went with it. For the uninitiated, Eggers is the director of the film. Uh, okay. So, Nick, your th- favorite topic one of your favorite topics ghostbusters yeah okay are we stoked for the new ghostbusters movie oh (laughs) i can't wait i love ghostbusters so much it is one of my all-time favorite things period and seeing these trailers for ghostbusters afterlife seeing everything leading up to it just makes my heart sing and it seems like a logical extension, a logical story to me, where these uh, this family is moving into this old farmhouse that was left to them by their grandfather, by yeah. and their grandfather turns out to be Egon. And you know that's that's the only thing I'm kind of sitting there going, eh, because I don't know if Egon would have grandkids, but whatever, who cares? I was just saying he wouldn't get married and have kids. His disposition, but whatever, it's fine, it's fine, it's fine. This movie's happening. I am looking forward to it. Paul Rudd is in it. I love Paul Rudd. Uh, the three remaining boys are going to be back. Dan Aykroyd, Bill Murray, Ernie Hudson. 
Uh, Annie Potts is in there. We've already seen her cameo in the trailer. I wish Rick Moranis was coming back, but that's not going to happen. It just, but it looks so good. You and you see all of the classic stuff. Like they've got the terror dogs in there. We've seen what looks to be a snippet of Gozer at one point, and they've got themselves a new Slimer to go along with the old Slimer. It looks so good. It looks like it's going to be a, a pure hit of nostalgia. It just, oh man, I can't wait. I can't wait. Now, is there any uh, word or any any idea that Sigourney Weaver might show up? That's a good point. Um, I'm actually not sure. Maybe, but I'm not sure. It'd be nice if they could. I mean, yeah. um, I, I was kind of rooting for the all-female Ghostbusters. I liked seeing those legacy characters come back in new and different ways. Mm-hmm. It was kind of fun. Um, I'm not going to rip on that movie too much. It just... There was something about the writing that didn't quite work. See, and there's the thing. I'm I'm in the camp that liked that movie. I, it's, it's not, you know... It's I didn't not the, hate it. It's not the original films, but it's still it's still fun to watch. I'll sit down and watch it on a rainy afternoon. It's fine. I, I didn't hate it, but the whole point is that we've got these um, female characters which are supposed... And, and you have some very talented actresses and comedians yeah. in there. And they just didn't give them stuff to do, and then you throw in one of my favorite guys, Chris Hemsworth as Kevin, who steals the show. Yeah, and that's that's kind of the thing. Um, and that, that's no fault of Hemsworth. No, 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 no. I, like, personally, I love Kristen Wiig. I think she's great. I I felt she wasn't given given enough to do in that movie. But Wesley g- Jones is so talented. Ah, yeah, they could have. They could have done more to elevate that. They really could have. The, the movie was frustrating. They, just, they made frustrating choices. That's all there is. But again, I don't mind it. I will sit down and watch it on a rainy afternoon. Nick, I want to talk about something now from my childhood, which is this is exciting news for Canadians everywhere, and this has gone into the states, so people are kind of aware of it. We're talking about one of my favorite horror guys, Vincent Price. Oh yeah. The Hilarious House of Frankenstein. It is free streaming now. It's available soon on Blu-ray. For the first time ever, the complete series. There's one little licensing snag that they're dealing with mm-hmm. because there was a lot of music when they yeah. went, when they went to the the Wolfman. You know, because Wolfman was a DJ it's in this. Jack. Um, and. Well, he was based on Wolfman Jack. It wasn't... Really? Yeah. Oh, I thought it was actually Wolfman Jack that was playing him. No. Oh, geez. No. No. Nick, This. let me run this down for you. Okay? okay. There was the... I, I can't think of his name. The gentleman that played Igor. Right. Vincent Price. Right. And starring Billy Van, 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 Billy Van. <laughs> and, uh, of course, the real science uh, professor, Julius something. So, I've never actually watched it. Um, Billy Van played all the characters except for Igor, Vincent Price, obviously, obviously. Uh, and Professor Julius something. Interesting. I'll have to give it a sh- I think it's on Crave right now. I'll have to give it a shot. Uh, yeah, absolutely watch it. It's, it's funny, but it's coming out soon, and I'm living for this because every Canadian kid of my generation that has seen this can say word for word Vincent Price's closing remarks. For the hilarious house of Frankenstein. Which were? So it goes like this. So Vincent Price is sitting there. He's got a candle. Right. Candle's lit. Behind him is the inert Frankenstein monster, which never, ever has come to life, despite the Count trying to bring him to life. Right. 
And it's got that nice little Batman kind of angle to it. And imagine Vincent Price's voice. I can't imitate Vincent Price's voice, but imagine Vincent Price saying this. The castle lights are growing dim. There's no one left but me and him. When next you come to Frankenstone, don't come alone. And then he blows out the candle and the end credits roll. Oh, that's so cool. With the music. And it was so great watching this. It's campy. It's funny. It's weird. It's uh, just... uh, But if you love Vincent Price and you love horror comedy or or comedies that are based on on horror, particularly universal monsters, um, the characters in this are just fantastic. Griselda... Um, the Oracle, uh, the Librarian, just anything that you can think and, of. And all these characters are played by Billy Van. By Billy Van. Cool. And it's just, a, it's really just an amazing kind of um, thing to watch. Because it was born out of the fact that back in the day, um, television stations had to come up with their own content. Yeah, this that's out of Hamilton, Ontario, It's right? out of Hamilton, Ontario. It's very regional. Interesting. And, and it's, it's interesting because I know it's got... Uh, following down in the States as well. I don't know about other places in the world, but I do know it has a following it's in the States. It's got a cult sort of classic following, and it found its way into the zeitgeist, if you will. Interesting. And I think mostly because of Vincent Price's um, well, participation in it. Yeah, that makes sense. Continuing on, just one more. In- I found this interesting. I found this very interesting. So we know that David Gordon Green, uh, who was directing the new Halloween trilogy mm-hmm. uh, that we have talked about, he is, of course, behind with, I, I, I imagine, Blumhouse, Exorcist Trilogy coming up. Like a trilogy? Yeah, that's doing what a they trilogy? said, a trilogy. Mm. And you always start to wonder, well, who are they going to cast as the voice of the devil? Who's going to be Pazuzu? Because the original actress that played the voice of Pazuzu, like, I think she like drank a lot of whiskey and smoked a lot of cigarettes so she could get that rally voice or whatever yeah. for Pazuzu. Well, there is a screen queen who has expressed interest in voicing Pazuzu. Okay, who's that? Jamie Lee Curtis. Awesome. And I, I'm living for it. I hope she gets it. I'm pretty sure if well, you know David Gordon Green's not going to say no if she's really interested. Well, that's the thing. She has an in. Yeah. And she's Jamie Lee Curtis. So, so I'm really kind of hoping uh, that she gets that. So let's talk about The Exorcist. Just a little bit. Now, you know one of my all-time favorite horror flicks is Exorcist 3. Yes. Uh, George C. Scott yeah. and uh, Brad Dourif. And... I, I love that movie. Now, if they're doing a trilogy, are they splitting the original Exorcist book into three? Are they going to do Exorcist? Are they going to do Legion, which Exorcist 3 was based off of, and then do something else? Like, Do we know what they're doing? We, uh, no, I don't know what they're doing. Uh, it's something we'd have to look into, and perhaps we can inform our listeners on a future show. I think that would be a good idea. I would really, I mean, as far as, as far as a remake to Exorcist goes, okay, I'll watch it. But man, if they redo, if they readapt Legion, they got to tread lightly on that one because there is some classic stuff in there. I think it's really difficult too when we look at these um, remakes, reboots, whatever you want to call them. I mean, the, the wording gets very muddy in the fact that you don't know if it's a direct sequel, if they're redoing it, if it's if it's something completely new and different. 
Um, let's use Friday the 13th that had Jared Pavlecki in it for yeah. a minute. Was that really a reboot or was it a sequel? Because when you, they called it a reboot, but the truth of the matter is there was nothing about Pamela Voorhees in that. There, Jason, yeah, there was. Jason, no, but I mean, it wasn't that I, yeah. like Jason was full grown, all the, okay, I got you. I all got the stuff you, had happened. He was trompsing around the, the camp and the, the local old lady from the Texas Chainsaw Massacre series <laughs> reboots this thing goes you leave him alone we leave him alone he leaves us alone don't go up there looking for trouble whatever well and there's the thing like some some things get it, it's all dependent on the advertising like i saw online the other day somebody had mentioned the new Candyman movie and somebody asked oh is, is it a re- reboot as a remake and I'm like no it's a sequel yeah but it is, but it isn't, but it is, but it isn't. And yeah. it gets very confusing and gets very muddied. It's a resequel book. Since you brought up Candyman, I thought it was a good movie. My only disappointment, though, is that Tony Todd was not in it enough as a Candyman. I agree with you. I agree with you. Um, I love Tony Todd. He is one of the best horror icons. And he's a fine gentleman, too. I met him at Niagara Falls Comic Con. Yeah. Very, very nice man. I, I, I'd like to meet him. But yeah, like as far as it goes, the rem- the new Candy. I was about to say remake. The new Candyman. I think it was brilliant. I enjoyed it, and I really, I th- thought it handled its message very well. So Nick, uh, out of all the things we've talked about, what excites you the most to see coming up? Oh boy, um, Ghostbusters Afterlife. <laughs> yeah, that's that's just. Good. I am going to be. Okay, so a few years ago, they brought the original Ghostbusters back to the theater, and I sat there like a kid again, just grinning up at the, the screen. And I feel like it's going to be like that all over again. I'm just going to have that hidden nostalgia. I'm just going to. This movie could suck. This movie could be, be the worst piece of crap ever, and I could sit there and be like, "Please feed me more. Please more." I might not be objective when I review it, just so you're aware. Well, that's what you have me for. <laughs> <laughs> How about you, buddy? What are you uh, excited for? Um, I think, honestly, out of everything that we've talked about, I am probably most excited to see where uh, some of the DC property goes. Black Adam? Yeah, Aquaman 2. Aquaman 2, geez. I mean, it's it's one of those things where uh, the DC universe, in the, in the DC cinematic universe, has been kind of hit or miss. Let's use let's use Wonder Woman. The okay. first Wonder Woman was a really good movie. It was. You know that Gal Gadot can step on my neck with stilettos, and I would apologize for being in her way. However, Wonder Woman <laughs> 1984 made no sense. It was two and a half to three hours of my life I'll never get back, and it was terrible uh, in the fact that we had the cheetah, we had a good actress playing the cheetah, and they did so little with the cheetah. And I would like to take this opportunity, having said that, to trash the film a little bit, to apologize to Gal Gadot because I watched it wrong. Oh, wow. Wow, wow, wow. Jeez. Um, Yeah, so... You'd apologize to her for getting in her way. I, I, well, I, yeah, if she stepped on my neck with stiletto heels, I would apologize for being in her way, and I would apologize to her for watching the piece of crap that is Wonder Woman 1984 wrong. Oh. Uh, 
Well, with that, if you want to get in contact with us, if you want to watch any of our Twitch streams, check us out at the Area 51H Twitter, Twitch, and Instagram. Well, folks, that's all the time that we have. So it's John Allen and Snyderman 501. Nick Snyder signing off from Area 51 and a half. See you again soon. <laughs> that was good. Yeah, you know, I really would. I mean, Tim has the crush on Gal Gadot. I've got the crush on Gal Gadot. I mean, she can be in a lot. Oh, sorry, Washington.